Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one EU news and politics podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the author of Politico's Brussels Playbook column. This week in EU politics, it was all about shrinkage and enlargement. On the EU shrinkage front, Michel Barnier made a sweep through London, declaring that yes, while he must respect the UK government's Brexit red lines, unfortunately, that would mean reduced access for all their finance folk to the EU market. His deputy, Savine Vayan, put on her best patient kindergarten teacher Twitter voice to explain to Brits what a customs union is and isn't. And then a German right-wing MEP, Hans-Olaf Henkel, a former president of the BDI, Germany's biggest industry lobby, he calculated something that will make you rethink Brexit a little bit. Brexit leaving the EU single market is the economic equivalent to the 19 smallest countries in the EU also leaving that single market at the same time. On the enlargement side, the EU presented what it billed as a path to membership for six Western Balkans nations, potentially by 2025. Potentially was the key word because they were very tough in their report. We're going to speak to Andrew Gray from Politico a little bit later in the podcast. On a related note, hundreds of thousands of Greeks were protesting Sunday over the country's unresolved complaint about the use of the name Macedonia by their northern neighbour. Macedonia is also a Greek region. The point here, that even the supposedly simple things, like what you call your country, is not simple in this region. And then, somewhat of a positive note, Germany is close to having a new government. Sure, it took a 170-page coalition agreement to get them there, and they still need the members of the Social Democratic Party to approve it, but Angela Merkel is going to take what progress she can get at this point. Joining me now for a quick look back into the rearview mirror of the EU's new strategy for enlarging its membership base into the Western Balkans is Politico's Mr. Balkans, Andrew Gray. Hi, Ryan. So, give it to us straight, Andrew. The EU had some pretty tough words in this document. Federica Mogherini, she came out and said, well... It's not a target, it's not a deadline, this idea of 2025 as a turning point for these countries in their application to join the EU. It's just a perspective. So what are we to believe? The words in the document, the nice words in the press conference, or something else? 
Yeah, probably a bit of both. I think we got the bitter pill, if you like, is in the strategy to a large extent. It starts with a description of the current state of these countries, which makes you wonder why the EU would want to have them as members. It really does, in contrast to some of these descriptions before, which people in the Balkans, you know, civil society activists have felt have been too much on the bright side, too much sugarcoating of what's going on in their own countries. I don't think this particular document could be accused of that. So this one is pretty stark. It lays out in pretty black and white terms how much needs to be done, how far away from EU membership these countries are at the moment. And then Federica Mogherini, if you like, was putting the sugar on the pill, I think, by saying we really want the Western Balkans. The Western Balkans is part of Europe. In other words, saying you can do it. But the document says you're far away and you're going to have to do a lot to get there. So in a sense, it was a kind of not quite good cop, bad cop, but definitely a kind of mixed message. And the idea is obviously on the one hand to try and encourage these countries, particularly when we say the countries, we really mean the governments, the political leaders in these places to take the necessary steps. But at the same time, this strategy uses the word credible. And I think there's an attempt here to make sure they're not accused of overly sugarcoating things in terms of what needs to be done. Absolutely. And in a sense, the EU had to come up with a document like this because they really haven't been offering many carrots to the region in recent years because it was seen as politically unacceptable to bring these countries in very soon. But some of that reluctance was born before Russia started really weighing in more heavily into the region, for example, in Serbian politics. And I also heard from the Prime Minister of Albania in Davos who said that he needs to have something to tell his people so that they are not intrigued by more Islamist forms of ideology. He needs to offer them a Europe. Do you think that the EU has given that bare minimum? Yeah, I think it, it probably has. But I, and I do think that's one of the reasons that the EU, having kind of gone cold on enlargement for a while now, is making the case. In a sense, it sees a reason, a kind of self-interested reason for going down this route. And that's the case it's going to have to make to its own citizens, who a lot of whom are sceptical about enlargement, are going to be sceptical about taking on countries which are, for the most part, poor for the, and which have the problems which are described in this report, including the, the widespread corruption, organised crime, and, and generally a weak state, if you like, in, in a lot of these countries. So, the EU needs to make that case that it's in its own interests, and one of the ways it's doing that is by saying, look, Russia's getting involved. If we don't get involved, then what's sometimes called the kind of soft underbelly, this is a region that's surrounded by EU countries, then that area is going to become a sphere of influence of our rivals, or in some cases our enemies. And um, So we need to get involved in this. And the Commissioner for Enlargement, Johannes Hahn, has got this little phrase which he's using, which is to say either we export stability to the Balkans or we import instability. Now, whether the message that they've given is enough to encourage these countries on that path and to push the other players into the background, I'm not sure. I think it depends on the country and I think it's going to need more than obviously some words in a strategy document. The EU already does a lot in all these countries. It's the biggest foreign investor. It's the biggest trading partner of the region. So it's already very involved. And what the EU is talking about is increasing that involvement. I don't know if what they're proposing, which is various enhanced cooperation and ways of trying to bring the Western Balkans closer to the EU, is going to be enough. Are they doing enough, for example, on their own single market? 
there's been efforts to bring down barriers within the region, which is a bit of a, a jumping off point in order to then align with the EU. So that's, that's question number one. And then the second question is how much of an overhang is there from all of the wars in the 1990s? Because we've seen even amongst the more amicable neighbours like Slovenia and Croatia that they're still capable of having a very bitter border dispute even though they're both in the EU. There's been a lot more terrible things going on in that region in the recent past. Are they really through that or is there still a lot more work to do? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really big question. Just to answer your first one, first, the EU is trying to get them to cooperate more between themselves economically as a kind of bridge to then becoming part of the EU. Um, There are some efforts being made in that direction. There are some, of course, the, the irony, the tragedy in some ways is these countries, with the exception of Albania, were all part of a single economy, a single single country not that long ago. And they've spent much of the last 20 years building up borders and barriers between them. And so now what, in a sense, the EU is trying to encourage them to do is go back to how they were before. And once again, the, the irony or the sadness here is that Yugoslavia, the country uh, from which most of these countries came, would have been first in the queue to join the European Union ahead of many countries which have subsequently joined. It was a relatively uh, liberal economy by communist standards. There was private enterprise in small businesses and it also had freedom of movement. People could come and go from Yugoslavia in a way that they couldn't from other communist countries. So that's kind of one of the tragedies of what's happened in, in the region over the past or happened in the, in the 90s especially. And there are unfortunately still many legacies to be dealt with. I mean, and I think that is one of the key messages from the strategy was to say to these countries, you're going to have to solve these disputes, which you have failed to solve, even though you're no longer at war. For example, Serbia does not recognise Kosovo. Several EU members don't recognise Kosovo, by the way, either. So there are a lot of these bilateral disputes and also just a deep sense in the region of unresolved grievances which really haven't been addressed and sometimes political leaders make an occasional attempt to pay lip service to reconciliation but um, you know among large parts of the population it hasn't really happened yet. Andrew Gray thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thanks Ryan. And now it's time to hear from Nick Clegg who was the Deputy Prime Minister of the United Kingdom but he has a CV as long as our arms when it comes to time spent in Brussels and he is going to tell us why he's advocating for a new radical centre in European politics and why he really is not happy with the way the UK government is behaving. Joining me now on EU Confidential is Nick Clegg, who has an illustrious CV when it comes to Brussels. Before he was the Deputy Prime Minister of the UK, he started off as an intern in the European Commission, a stagiaire as it's known here in the very early 90s. You were in the Cabinet of Commissioner Liam Britton, you were an MEP, then you were an MP, then you were in coalition with David Cameron and the Conservatives in the UK. And obviously the big thing that is on the minds of a lot of Britons at the moment is Brexit. Mm. But... We can go stage beyond Brexit in this discussion, which is what do you do now that Brexit is happening? And you were here to talk about rebuilding a radical centre in European politics. What, what's the recipe? What, what, what do we need to do to get that happening? What, to get a radical, radical centre going? Yeah. Um, well, we have to learn how to um, deal with a lot of the insecurities and fears and anxieties that lots of people have across the developed world, particularly in the wake of 2008 and do a better job than the nationalists, the populists, 
the chauvinists who at the moment are making a lot of the running, both in North America and across Europe, in exploiting those fears. But they don't have the answers, that's the point. So, you know, building a wall is not going to suddenly resuscitate the Rust Belt in the United States in the same way that pulling out of the world's largest borderless single market is not suddenly going to deal with stagnant wages in the United Kingdom. And so I, I think, you know, one of the, I mean, I mean it's, it sounds simple, but it's actually kind of complicated, is that um, centre-ground reforming politicians just need to come up with a lot better answers, particularly in the wake of 2008, than we have done. Because if you don't, then that sense of sort of disenfranchisement and anger about the status quo is, of course, only going to grow. And Emmanuel Macron has had some success mm. in what, we can only presumably refer to as a, a model of a radical centre. Do you think that can be extrapolated into other European countries? Or are you really saying we need 27 or 28 sets of other ideas? To I, don't, I, don't think you can, I don't think you can carbon copy uh, you know, one political party and transport it into another. You can't clone one politician and sort of parachute them into another democracy. And anyway, the systems are kind of different. And you know, the French system is a presidential system, etc., etc., but I, I mean, there are a few things that I think Macron's done which are worth trying to emulate. I think his his embrace of a sort of positive French patriotism. I saw him the other day holding up a baguette, a French baguette, demanding that French baguettes get some kind of, I don't know what it is, some United Nations heritage status. I don't know quite what it was, was, but I mean, it was just... Indeed what he was doing. But, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I think we've got to get over this idea that somehow... You, you, you can't be pro-European and internationalist and patriotic at the same time. And I think so European can, patriots, yeah, we need to develop I mean, I mean, some if you, look at, if you look at the Brexit referendum, one of the many, many things that, if you like, one of the many things that was inverted was um, the very powerful Brexit press in the United Kingdom managed to portray people who advocated Brexit as patriots and people who advocated staying in the European Union as somehow not being as patriotic. I mean, it's absurd. First, a lot of these uh, proprietors don't even live in the country or pay taxes in the country, so it's it's quite rich for them to start lecturing the British public about who you know has the greatest commitment to the welfare of the United Kingdom. But secondly, you know, these so-called Brexit patriots what a frog march. The next generation, the youngsters, 70% of whom voted for a different future towards a future they don't want. What on earth is patriotic about that? When you, when you sell you know, your kids and your grandkids down the river, I think that is the, that's the kind of abdication of, of patriotism. So I, I do think that's one thing we could learn from, um, from Macron. But also his emphasis on, uh, yes, making sure that our economies are uh, dynamic and uh, that our labour markets and our product markets and our pensions and all that kind of stuff is properly kind of liberalised and he's been sort of attacking some of the, the red tape and high taxes in France. But he's also accompanied that with a belief that you also need to show folk that, that you're protecting them as well. You're protecting them from unfair competition. You're protecting them from terrorism, that you're protecting them from um, you know, mass migration flows, which they might not be comfortable with. I, I think that combination of dynamism and protection is a really important one. And, and maybe one of the things that us liberals, certainly in the European debate, did in the past, was to emphasise how you need to kind of get rid of controls without realising you also need to reassure people that there are the right kind of controls, the right kind of protections, to reassure them that it's not just a free-for-all. And what do you rate the chances of protecting Britons from a hard Brexit, or Europeans indeed, from a hard Brexit? Well, if the government gets its way, I mean, there's basically zero chance because... Uh, 
I mean, something quite significant has happened these last few days in the United Kingdom. I mean, this week we have seen, in effect, the death of soft Brexit. There was a sort of residual hope amongst, you know, more moderate, reasonable folk in the Conservative Party and elsewhere that maybe, you know, in the end, Theresa May would uncharacteristically pluck up the courage to face down the angry mob on her right wing and to seek to do what is self-evidently economically the rational thing to do, which is to try and preserve as much as you can the high level of British participation in, in the EU single market and customs union. A single market, incidentally, which probably wouldn't have come into existence if it hadn't been for the... Well, you were involved in building it very intensely. For the leadership of one of her predecessors, uh, Margaret Thatcher. But anyway, it's, it's quite clear she, you know, every time she's put under pressure, she basically buckles. And it's basically been the history of the Conservative Party pretty well for the last 20 years that the zealots, um, who don't represent the mainstream of, of British public opinion at all, tend to get their way. So I don't, think, I don't think the choice anymore is between, you know, like a kind of more cuddly version of Brexit compared to a, a more nasty one or, you know, a soft one versus a hard one. The choice at the end of the day, which is what will face MPs towards the end of this year, is really now between a damaging Brexit, in fact, an exceptionally damaging Brexit, or no Brexit at all. And is and there I, a chance and, 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 we can that extend was... Article 50 or something like that? If, what if MEPs or MPs vote the deal down at the end of 2018? Could, could... Well, I hope, they, I hope they will, because I don't think MPs should feel remotely duty-bound to vote for this pig in a poke. You know, the, look, the British people were promised a utopia. They were promised that effortlessly the United Kingdom would, just at the click of its fingers, get a whole bevy of new trade deals with countries outside the European, which would more than make up for any lost trade with our largest trading partners in our own hemisphere. They were promised more money for the NHS every week, cuts in direct taxes, uh, cuts in class sizes, even lower pharmaceutical prescription charges. I mean, this is for real. This is what people were told they would get for voting for Brexit. So I think when it becomes obvious, as it already has, that the British people are not going to get any, I mean, literally none, of that great long list of beguiling promises they were made by the Brexiteers, I think they're, I think they're totally within their rights to say, well, hang on a minute, we're not going to vote for this because this is not what you told our constituents they were going to get. At that point, of course, you'll have a crisis. Uh, there'll be a standoff between Parliament and government, a kind of constitutional crisis, if you like. I do think at that point it will be essential, one way or another, to play for some time because part of what's making everybody kind of lose their heads is this sort of loud and ever louder kind of ticking clock, the so-called Article 50 timetable, which was needlessly triggered by the government itself. Even though um, they did have a year to prepare for it. Oh, yeah. I mean, we all imagined here in I Brussels know. that, well, they're not pulling the trigger because they're lining up all their ducks. They're doing very intense no. analysis and research. No, no, no. It's, I think it is impossible to exaggerate the level of a cluelessness and incompetence now at the heart of British government. And I know, because I've worked here in Brussels, as you alluded to yourself, the British government... The Whitehall machine, the British political establishment, even you know, love them or loathe them, other European governments and indeed EU institutions used to constantly sort of refer to the Whitehall and Westminster establishment as at least competent, at least kind of able to prepare itself well. You know, the Foreign Office had this great reputation for preparing these excellent briefings. Ministers were always, you know, well briefed right up, you know, up to the latest detail. I think it's really difficult for folk here in Brussels and in other European capitals to get used to the idea that, you know, to all intents and purposes, the British government now looks like a bunch of Muppets sitting around the, the, the cabinet table. They're not able to agree with themselves. 
They're not able to agree with each other. They're not able to agree what they want. This has been going on for month after month after month. It's really embarrassing. And so I kind of think that if MPs do, as I believe they are entitled to, say, look, we're not going to just put up with this. This is just not right for our constituents. It's not right for our country. And it's not what you promised them. Then I think the crucial thing will be to find a bit of time. Everyone just needs to calm down a bit. And people need to catch their breath. Now, how you do that, I mean, that, you can do that lots of different ways. You can, you, can, you know, the, the 27 countries with obviously the, at the behest of the United Kingdom could, could just extend the existing Article 50 timetable. I suppose you could find some kind of way of basically withdrawing the Article 50 mm-hmm. letter pending the ability of another British government to retable it. Again, that can be done by consensus. I mean, a lot can be done by consensus. And I, I kind of think... And of course, of course sometimes will, it will be done for a price as well. Well, maybe, but you know, look, of course you'll always find hardliners. You can find hardliners anywhere. You can find hardliners, hardliners in this town who, if there is any sign that the British people, through their MPs, want to change their minds, people say, no, I'm sorry, it's too late. You know, it's like a game of mastermind. I've started, therefore I'll finish. Um, of course you can find people, like, and no doubt there are people in, in here in Brussels and in Paris and elsewhere who kind of a, a warming to the idea of the United Kingdom leaving and won't welcome it, a, a change of heart. But the overwhelming majority of smart kind of power brokers in the EU, and I speak to a fair number of them, realise that in the long run, however much you know, Britain can be a bit of an awkward member of the European club, at the end of the day, of course it's better to have the UK inside the tent rather than thrashing around as we are at the exit sign. And how much does it matter that some of the resistors, the Remainers, the Ramonas, the many labels that might be applied to them, that they do seem to be gathering their forces a little bit better than they were over the past 18 months? Yeah, look, I mean, at the end of the day, it's for current MPs and current politicians to lead the charge in Parliament. And that's why it's good news that Anna Subri and Chukaramuna and Chris Leslie and Dominic Grieve and Nicky Morgan and Pat McFadden, you know, these, these are all people from Conservative and Labour parties who are kind of finding their voice. They're working more effectively with this array of different campaign groups. And there's one very significant name that we haven't mentioned in that whole list, and that's Jeremy Corbyn, mm. who seems to have been inching towards a more soft Brexit policy right at the moment that you're saying it's dead. Has he? And that, well, that, that's, that's our reading. But whether it's going to happen or not, I don't see him leading or organising any of these groups, which, you know, given his past in Parliament and as an activist, you'd think he'd be exactly the sort of person who would be leading some kind of grassroots group, tapping into popular sentiment on some kind of issue of social justice. But he's not really in the Brexit picture. What, what do you make of his role in this whole process? I think it's shameful. I think it is a total abdication of responsibility and leadership. And if he persists with what he and John McDonnell keep saying they want to do, which is to support a Tory Brexit, a hard Tory Brexit, it'll represent the greatest betrayal of progressive values and of international values in British politics in the modern era. And I think he will reap an absolute whirlwind of uh, opprobrium for doing so. And I think it's just kind of, it's just pathetic that the Labour Party, which has always believed that European democracies and progressive democracies work most effectively when they work together. It is just astonishing that the modern leader of the Labour Party, stuck in this kind of weird time warp in the 1970s, you know, where he's kind of repeating all these banal cliches about 
Europe being a you know the single market being a kind of market for big bosses and so on. It, it's as if he just hasn't kind of kept up with what's happened to the EU for the last thirty years. It is now a much much more sophisticated arrangement which guarantees worker rights, consumer rights, environmental standards, and you know I just I just beg his belief that he and Donald still keep repeating these tedious, out-of-date, ill-informed accusations and allegations from the kind of nostalgic left. And he could make such a difference. He really could make such a, a difference if he was to actually lead opinion rather than sit there and just observe it. I think part of what's going on is, is that they've convinced themselves that all they need to do is kind of sit on their hands and let the Conservatives screw things up and they'll waft effortlessly into number 10. Well, I tell you, because I've, you know, <laughs> I've done the rounds in politics... You don't just waft into positions. You have to fight for it. And, and, and the British electorate are not just going to allow Jeremy Corbyn to sort of, you know, sidle into number 10 without actually saying what he believes. He kind of, he drifted through the last election because no one actually really, frankly, thought he had much chance of, of no, getting, getting anywhere. Theresa May threw that. It wasn't well, Jeremy Corbyn that, but, but, but No, but he wasn't put under any scrutiny. He received a lot of abuse from the knuckleheads in the right-wing press, but he didn't receive any scrutiny. Next time, he'll receive much more scrutiny. So I don't think it makes any political sense either. And listen, they should be worried. A half-decent leader of the opposition would kill this government in a week. It is one of the most fragile, incompetent, internally divided British governments in living memory. And yet the Labour Party is still basically level-pegging with the, with the Conservatives. I mean, that is how bad they're doing. Jeremy Corbyn is still reliably rated as a less desirable Prime Minister by the British public. And I keep hearing he's doing so well. The real story in British politics is why on earth is Labour not doing better? So I kind of think it's wrong objectively. I think it's wrong ethically because he's letting down the kind of moral case, moral progressive case. It also doesn't make any political sense. They're being far too complacent. Mm -hmm. They shouldn't be as complacent as they are being. And is there a gap then for Liberal Democrats to... Sure. Squeeze through. Sure, but it's look, it's it's tough if you're a party of only twelve MPs, and you know Vince Cable's doing a, a decent job, but it's tough. At the end of the day, we're kind of now, you know, we're now coming to the very last minute in the in the eleventh hour of, of of this whole Brexit saga, and uh, you know I might wish as much as I like that the Liberal Democrat Parliamentary Party is bigger than it is. It ain't, and it won't be before the end of this year. So the the heaviest responsibility lies on the shoulders, above all, of Jeremy Corbyn and his fellow travellers in the Labour Party. And I cannot believe, when push comes to shove, that the Labour Party can spend two years condemning the ills of a Tory Brexit. A Tory Brexit. What, and then vote alongside hard-right ideologues like Michael Gove and Liam Fox and Ian Duncan Smith? Really? Really? Oh, I don't believe it. Now I've got one final question, because it's the 11th hour of this podcast. But we saw on the front page of the Sunday Times this last weekend the idea of a Brexit minister being posted out here in Brussels, kind of like some uh, curtain twitcher mm. sitting in Kitty O'Shea's where you're about to head for a beer who's going to spy on all the comings and mm. goings outside of the Berlimont. Is that insane? Could that possibly work as a useful tool in Well, British I wouldn't government? put it past them. I mean, you've got to understand... You know, these people like Rhys Mogg, who's now positioned himself as the sort of leader of the, as you say, the kind of anti-European curtain twitcher. But he's not really a curtain twitcher. He's a bit like sort of Don Quixote. He's, in he's right out there. The curtains are open. He's, he's like not hiding Dink, anything. He's like a Don Quixote in pinstripes. He's sort of rushing at windmills that don't kind of exist. 
you've got to understand that they're like kind of Maoist revolutionaries. They don't care how many bodies they sacrifice along the way. They don't care how much hardship is inflicted in the, on people in the long march. They believe that there is this promised land, uh, that they are the great sort of prophets who see something that no one else sees. So, of course, every time it doesn't work out the way that they believe in their sort of fevered imaginations, it has to be someone else's fault. This is the point. This is what revolutionaries do. So that's why they go around... I mean, they're not quite taking up arms at the moment. But this is why revolutionaries down the ages always end up kind of going on sort of a mass bloodletting exercise because they have to find scapegoats for the failure to deliver utopia. That's what revolutionaries always do. Now, any final words of wisdom for all those Britons or, or people who've never been to Belgium from wherever you are in the world? You've lived here for many years. What's some kind of positive reality check about something you remember fondly from this town? The beer's great. Uh, it's much quicker to get around town because it's much smaller than, than London. It's got some beautiful woods, right? Just just like, you know, stone throw uh, away. And if you need the thrills and spills of London, you know, it's only two hours by train. So what's, what's not to like? Exactly. Nick Clegg, thank you for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you. That was Nick Clegg, former UK Deputy Prime Minister and former leader of the Liberal Democrats, talking to me earlier this week at the Lisbon Council think tank here in Brussels. Now, unfortunately, we don't have our regular panel this week for technical reasons. They'll be back very soon. But we do have an interview with the man we chose last week as our MEP of the week. So... Joining me on the phone from Strasbourg is Lambert van Nistelrooy, who is a Christian Democrat member of the European Parliament. Uh, so thank you for joining, Lambert. Okay, thank you. Now, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? I know you as someone with a really keen interest in digital politics and policy. What's your latest legislative file and, and your priority for 2018? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yesterday we voted on the geo blocking that in Europe you can go over the border to buy something in the normal physical world. But when you look to the online shopping and the, the web shops, it was often a surprise what you had to pay. And uh, there, after negotiations with the council, we could throw this out. Discrimination from location, from nationality or whatever. And also for your credit card, for your paying card. So we finalized something for our citizens. Yes, this is an example. Great. And so basically now people will find it easier to do online shopping. It will be harder for the merchants to say, we're not sending it to you or we're not accepting your credit card. Yeah, this is exactly what happens because the internal market has a general rule, but, but how to implement it in this new digital world, there you are nothing behind. And now there is an obligation to offer. And in fact, you can get the product sometimes it could be sent if it's very far and you have to pay this cost but this is the end of a long period of hesitation in many countries and if you could name one more thing that really needs to happen with the digital single market you know what, what is the thing that you will push for in this last biggest, year of the mandate the biggest thing is the point of trust I think that myself and now we are preparing to build a new house and have even a, a debate with my wife so we have a lot of these kind of Internet of Things applications to steer our house and to make it better, uh, more, more quality and good things. And there, she says, we can be hacked. We might be hacked with our camera in the house and like that. So it's about trust. It's about standardization. When we buy a product that we are sure 
that would have the quality and that not the lowest, lowest price uh, is deteriorating the safety. So this is the main thing that the whole security, the whole cyber security debates that are upcoming, that is most important for me. People can only trust you if you deliver. Well, thank you for delivering for us on the EU Confidential Podcast, Mr. Van der Story. Right, thank you very much. That was Lambert van Nistelrooy, MEP. We'll have a new MEP of the week very soon. That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. If you haven't left us a review online already, please do. And did you know, you can subscribe to this podcast. We deliver it to you like pizza or beer, except it's better and it's free. And a big shout out to the whole EU Confidential podcast crew, a bumper-sized crew this week of Andrew Gray, Michelle Stoddart, Zach Sayer, Natalie Sauer, Wei Dong Lin, and Antonio Fernandez. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.